I love uh, the Heidelberg and the Westminster, how they really open up those commandments. And they, um, in fact, y'all know Al Baker, he was using the uh, the Westminster Catechism, or excuse me, the Westminster Lar- uh, Westminster Confession. And, and I mean, I, I, I was seeing him apply it to, you know, somebody's dealing with this. Hey, man, read through the confession on the Ten Commandments. Somebody's dealing with this. Hey, man, read through the confession on the Ten Commandments. Because it opens up so much. And the, the point is, is it it's exposing the sin that's in us so that we're driven to Christ, so that we call upon Christ to, to save us and do a work of grace in us. So uh, that's, and the, the Heidelberg, of course, does that as well. So that's, I, I really appreciate how the Lord used those guys to open up some of that. Uh, Mark chapter 11 is where we are today. It feels like forever since I've been preaching in this pulpit. Um, but it's it's been nice. You know, Dan Zeisen, who's sick, by the way, they're sick, so pray for him. But, you know, I love it when, when uh, Eric gets done preaching or Al or somebody, anybody, and... Uh, Dan Zeisen says it's about time we got a good sermon at this in this pulpit. So, and I agree. I mean, I love it, and and uh, so it is nice to be back back uh, in the pulpit and um, preaching the word. But I know it's been a very long time, so we're going to have to do some some catch up here out of Mark chapter eleven. Okay, so Mark chapter eleven, verses fifteen through nineteen. So a few weeks ago when we dealt with this chapter, remember, okay, just to kind of remind everybody where we're at. And if you if you weren't here, that's good as well. So. Uh, the triumphal entry, right? So Christ comes into Jerusalem for the first time as far as, well, actually for the last time, you could say. So it's not his first time. It's his last time. He comes into Jerusalem, and the first thing he does when he comes to Jerusalem is, remember, he goes to the temple in verse 11 of chapter 11, and Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all these things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Remember how we talked about how odd that was, that he just goes there and looks around and then leaves? He doesn't do anything. He doesn't, I mean, he just, nobody, you know, as far as we know, I mean, people are no doubt there, but he, he doesn't interact with anybody. He just goes there, looks around, and then leaves. But that was way out of his way. It's not like it's on the way to Bethany here. He goes into Jerusalem, looks around, leaves Jerusalem, goes outside, and this is after that really laborious trek from Jericho, remember, straight up the mountain? And then, and then, so he goes way out of his way to look in the temple. We talked about, well, what's he doing there? That's the inspection. The Lord of the temple is inspecting the temple. And then he goes back, and so to catch you up, remember the last time we dealt with the, the parable of the fig tree. Okay, it's a, it's, it, was, it, was a, it was a real thing. It was a live action as far as what Christ does. He curses the fig tree. But remember we talked about how that is a parable of what he's going to do to the temple. But what he's going to do today, so look at today. This is verse 15. Your heading will no doubt say something like, Jesus cleanses the temple. All right, Which, actually, I think is a little misleading. He does cleanse the temple. We'll talk about this. But there's way more going on to it than that. Because what he's doing in the temple, when he goes in there to cleanse the temple, is also a parable. A parable of what? A parable of the destruction that's to take place to the temple in AD 70. So Christ is preaching here around AD 30. And the judgment of God is going to fall on the temple in a very catastrophic way in AD 70. So this is actually a parable of what's to take place to the temple. So he is going to cleanse the temple, but it's pointing to something beyond that. I hope that makes sense for the intro. Everybody good on that? Okay, so that's where we're at, just to kind of catch everybody up to speed. So you have here Christ going in. So let's read this, uh, verses 15 through 19. Remember, this is right after he has just 
said about the fig tree. No one, look what he says in verse 14. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. And then he goes into the temple. And what's he doing in the temple? So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Remember the next morning when he goes back, then he goes, he goes back by that fig tree, and that's where the fig tree is, is withered from the roots up. And that's to show, okay, this is what's going to happen to the temple. So, let's look at verse 15. So, first of all, what you see here, okay, in verse 15. So, they came to Jerusalem. Because, again, remember, they're not staying in Jerusalem. Jesus and the disciples, they don't camp out in Jerusalem. They camp out outside of Jerusalem. Not far from Jerusalem, but outside of Jerusalem. So, they come into Jerusalem, and then he goes into the temple. Now, there's two... Uh, blatant declarations. Remember we dealt with this whenever Christ comes into Jerusalem for the last time on the donkey, and we said, okay, remember all the way up throughout Christ's ministry, the big thing was it's don't tell anybody that the Messiah is here. Remember that? So Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus turns around, says, Peter, okay, you got it, but don't tell anybody. Remember that? He says that numerous, numerous occasions. He heals somebody. Hey, cast the demons out. These guys know who he is. Okay, but don't go tell anybody. Well, when he comes into Jerusalem, now it's like, okay, now, now is the time to go tell everybody the Messiah is here, the King is here. There's two blatant declarations of Christ coming to set up his royalty or his messianic reign and rule. And the first one is when he comes into Jerusalem on the donkey. We saw that. And the second one is here, actually, when he comes into the temple. Because what he's doing here is he's, he's, he's declaring, as we already saw, when he inspects the temple. The one who inspects the temple in the Old Testament is Yahweh. He's the one, the, we, we, we dealt with some of this whenever you're, you're dealing with the, uh, the jealousy inspections, you're dealing with the inspections of leprosy, all of these things, okay? This, these, are, these, are, these are ways that the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the priests were to administer this, but you, also, you always had them working under the Lord, Yahweh, okay? So when we talk about the temple, okay, for the Jew living in the days of Christ, who, who is owner of that temple? Who does the temple belong to? Well, Yahweh, right? So what Christ is doing is when he comes in here, and this is why they're so outraged, the, the, uh, the, the authorities, they know what he's doing. When he goes into the temple and he starts throwing around money changers and things like that, they know that he is declaring himself to be the head over the temple. Now, and I'll show you how this, is, how this works. Okay, look at this, okay? The temple area in verse 15, chapter 11, verse 15. The temple area, so they come, and that's, that's, that's what it then Jesus went into the temple area. That's what you would have when you're looking at the, the original. Okay? He goes into the temple area. Now, and this astonished me when I was first studying this. I had no idea this thing was so huge, massive, this temple area. Okay, just in your head, how big do you think the temple, this temple courtyard, this temple area is? I mean, just you know, get some kind of ballpark in your head, okay? Well, it's 500 yards long, almost two football fields long, and 325 yards wide. All right? It is massive. That's 35 acres. It's an enormous amount of space. This is why when Christ... Now think of this, okay? Christ goes into this temple, which is enormous. It's massive. Okay? When he goes into this temple, this is more than just him shutting down the entire thing. 
I don't think, you know, you read some of these commentators, they, they point out, you, I don't think Christ can shut down the whole thing. It's 300, it's, it's 35 acres big, large. You can't shut everything down. So what that tells us is that he is intentionally making a statement when he's doing this. He's not only trying to shut down, because sometimes, you know, when you hear people preach this or talk about this, there, there's, there's different interpretations. You know, a lot of times they'll say, well, this is a protest of commercialization in the temple. You know, the fact that they have... They have they have these animals out there and they're making a they're making some money some shekels over here and that so Jesus is upset because they they've commercialized the temple area and okay there might be some of that right greed and exploitation and everything of course God's going to forbid that and condemn that but there's way more going on to it because he's he's actually making again he's making a statement about what is God going to do to the entirety of the temple structure. And what he's also doing is when he's doing that, he's declaring himself to be the Lord of that structure, of the temple. Now, here's the thing, okay? There are merchants in the temple area, obviously, that are selling sheep, and they are selling doves for sacrifice. But, but, is that wrong? Think of this. Okay, you've heard all your life, probably. I've heard all my life. Yeah, that's wrong. You can't be, what are they doing selling this stuff in the temple area, right? How can they be doing this? What are they doing? Well, all right. Let's break this down just a little bit, okay? In, in Exodus 30, you have to bring a clean animal in order for the priest to be able to sacrifice the animal. It, you have to have a clean animal. So what was going on here is, I don't, let's say I'm, let's say first of all, I've just made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. I'm sorry I'm not going to bring my, my, my brood of goats with me to Jerusalem, right? I'm sorry I'm not going to bring my birdcage all the way to Jerusalem. Why? Because they're selling birds and they're selling goats here in the temple area. And I know that. And not only do I know that, but I can be certain that they're going to be clean animals. See, if I bring some of my own stack or whatever, stash, I'm not certain that the priest isn't going to look at that and say, hey man, there's some blemish on this thing. It's not, it's not going to pass. But I know if I go there, if I go to the, if, because everyone's on pilgrimage most of the time. You know, when you're traveling, when, you, when you're in pa during Passover week in Jerusalem, most of the people there, I mean, I don't know the percentage, but the vast majority of people are people who are pilgriming. They are traveling there. So it's convenience, right? It's nice to have this, this stash of animals here for my convenience so that I don't have to worry about what animals are clean. I don't have to worry about bringing my own. I go, I show up, and I know they're there. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing because... Um, and you again, you get this Exodus 30. You you have this idea that um, not. And here's the other thing too: the money. What about the money changers? You're like, oh, right, can't be doing money changing. And well, you can actually because in Exodus 30, you had to use a Hebrew shekel in order to exchange, in order to purchase things on the temple grounds. You had to use a Hebrew shekel. So the Ty, the Tyrian shekel was the closest thing there was. And so that's the other thing. It's not like in America where everyone uses the same coinage. That was not the way it was in Palestine 2,000 years ago in the, in the land of Jesus. That's just not how it was. There were different, there were different coins. There were different everything. So you, you, had to have the right, you had to have the right coins. You had to have the right animals. And so here's a nice little setup where everything is very convenient. It's ready-made. You just show up, and you do what you need to do, and you go, and you get your, your animals, and that's that. Okay? Now... Check this out. And this is where things, this is where the problem lies, okay? Because they are charging interest for this. And that's, you know, if you if you read through the Old Testament, you find that God's people are not supposed to charge God's people interest. 
Well, they're charging interest. Now, now that's different, right? Now, now you're talking, and not only are they charging interest, but most, most of the people in living in the days of Christ, there's debate going on in the days of Christ because not only are they charging interest, but they are overcharging people for these things. Now this is different, right? The fact that there's ways to exchange money and the fact that there's animals, that's not the problem. Okay? But here's the other thing. Now check this out. Josephus in AD 66. This shows you how lucrative this market is. 255,000 lambs were sacrificed at the temple during Passover, during Passover week, during one week. 255,000 lambs were sacrificed in the temple in AD 66. So something like that would have been the same in the days of Christ. Something like 250,000 lambs. There is a lot of money involved. There's exploitation here. They're charging interest. They are making a lot of, people are making some money on this. All right. Now, here's where we stop and we have to ask ourselves, who's making the money on this? Who is the one making the money? Well, Annas the high priest and the Sadducees, primarily. They're the ones that kind of run the show in the temple. Annas the high priest and the Sadducees. They are overseeing the market. So when Christ comes in, and guess what? They also think themselves as the, like the, you know, the rulers of the temple, the ones that kind of take care of everything. So when Christ comes in, in verse 16, now look what happens in verse 16 when Christ comes in. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Okay, now you're starting to realize what he is doing is he's making a statement. Is he stopping the process? Well, maybe in a little corner, right? But in general, he's making a statement. And this actually is what is going to lead to his arrest and eventually his crucifixion. This right here, this act right here. I mean, there's, we know it's been leading up to this, but this something, it, it was, this is kind of the, 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 the powder keg exploding. This is when everything kind of sets off. And, and again, so you're, you're asking yourself, okay, look, I mentioned the second, what, three, four weeks ago. When in the Gospel of John, Jesus does this twice. He goes into the temple twice, right? Y'all remember we said that? And that's because in Leviticus 14, the priest goes into this house to inspect the house for leprosy twice. And on the second time, check this out, this is pretty cool. Go to Leviticus 14. So this is some typology stuff I think is pretty neat. So Leviticus 14, we can't, we can't break all of this down, but, but look at some of this. Okay, so Leviticus 14, 43 through 45. Okay, the second time, so, so you know, to, just to summarize everything, what's going on here, okay? Um, look at verse 35. And he, and he who owns the house comes and tells the priest, saying, It seems to me that there is some plague in the house. And the priest shall command that they empty the house, etc. They go in to examine the house. Verse 37, And he, he shall examine the plague. And if indeed the plague is on the walls of the house, within grain streaks, greenish or reddish, which appear to be deep in the wall, then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house and shut up the house for seven days. And then he comes back and he looks at it. He inspects it again. Okay, And if there is... Now look, go down to verse 43. If the plague comes back and breaks out in the house after he has taken away the stones, after he has scraped the house, and after it is plastered, so they're doing things to try to get rid of the leprosy, but if the leprosy will not go away, then the priest shall come and look. And indeed, if the plague is spread in the house, it is an act of leprosy in the house that is unclean. This temple structure that Jesus is dealing with, that he's examining, that he's looking at, is unclean. And this is not the first time that God has come in and inspected the temple structure. You remember in the days of, let's go back a little bit, okay? In the days of David, 
What's the big what, what is what's the big feat of David? What, what does David want to do? He wants to build the build the temple, right? You have the tabernacle. He wants to build a permanent structure, build the temple. God says, "Hey, David, your hands are your your man of blood." So you're not going to build it. Solomon's going to build it. Okay, great. Solomon comes in, builds this enormous, beautiful, glorious temple. What happens eventually? God comes, he inspects the fruit of the temple, he inspects the fruit of the land, he inspects the, and he realizes, okay, no, these people are, are, are under God's curse, under God's judgment because of their sin. So what does God do? He brings in Babylon, Babylon comes in, wipes the temple out, wipes them out. Okay, years later, what happens? Well, Cyrus is raised up, Cyrus says, okay, you go back, rebuild the temple. So Zerubbabel, those guys, they go back into Jerusalem. What do they do? They, they rebuild the, you know, it's a little shanty-looking thing compared to what it was. But it's a temple. It's something. So now you have the second temple. Well, then Herod the Great, eventually, he comes along about 100 years before Christ. And what does he do? He adds on to that. He makes this glorious thing. But each time, now, now you have this situation where God is returning and inspecting the temple, inspecting the religious situation, the institution. Okay, what, what's going on here? And, and this is why, now look what happens if there's leprosy, if it's unclean, what happens? And he shall break down the house, verse 45, he shall break down the house, its stones, its timber, and all the plaster of the house, and he shall carry them outside the city to an unclean place. And he's, I mean, the, the idea here is, is when Christ is inspecting this temple, that's what he's doing. He's showing, okay, is there fruit here? That's what we saw in the parable of the fig tree. There's no fruit. So what he's doing here is he is coming in there, and he's not just cleansing it. He's prophesying about what's going to happen to it. And this is why in verse 17, look what he says. Now, this is the key to interpreting what is wrong with the temple. What is wrong with it? If somebody were to ask you in, the days, in the, those days, you know, you're like, wow, Jesus. Man, I see you coming in there, and I see you're really upset about what's going on in the temple. I see you're really upset about what, what the problem, what's going on here with the, uh, with, with the religious the structure and everything that's taking place, there's corruption, there's greed, there's exploitation. But if you were to say, okay, Christ, I want you, can you, can you, can you summarize, can you tell me exactly what the problem is? And he says, he actually gives it to us. Look at verse 17 of chapter 11. He taught, saying to them, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? For all nations. Okay. Now let's stop right here and let's ask ourselves, okay, what is he talking about here? What is he dealing with? Back, you know, go back 2,000 years and ask yourself, okay, in the days of Christ, what exactly is the problem in, with the religious environment in the days of Christ? And, and the problem is something like this, okay? Ultra-nationalism. You say it that way? Now I'm not talking, when you hear ultra-nationalism, don't be like, you know, I mean, who knows where our heads go with that, you know? But the point is, okay, is in the, when I say ultra-nationalism, what I mean is that for the Jewish people, the only people who are God's people are ethnic Jews, right? That's what I mean by ultra-nationalism. We are the people of God, nobody else. And in fact, how did they look at all the other Gentile nations? What did they look at? When they saw these other Gentile nations, how did they see them? Unclean, filthy. They're, 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 they're evil. In fact, when the Messiah comes, what's the Messiah expected to do? The Messiah is expected to crush the Gentiles, to crush the nations. So it is a very hard 
narrow, exclusivistic view of, of, of what God is going to do through the Messiah. The world is dirty. The world is unclean. The Gentiles, the nations, they're unclean. They're pagans. They're to be avoided. You definitely don't want to eat with them. You definitely, if you can, don't even talk to them. In fact, if you go outside of, if you go outside of Israel, and you have to, if you just, if you have to go and visit one of their lands before you come back into Israel, you have to take your clothes off and dust everything out because you don't want you don't you don't even want the sand of some of these foreign Gentile pagan areas contaminating our precious soil in Israel. That's what's going on. So Jesus is looking at the situation. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Was it? Isn't the? I mean, now it's it's commonplace for us. But sometimes we think, okay, you know, the gospel was the gospel is something for the nations. We say that, and that's true, right? Now, now it's commonplace, praise God. We say, oh yeah, the gospel is for everybody. The gospel is for all nations. Did you know in the 1800s, though, it was not that it was not viewed that way? If you if you read a, a William Carey or Hudson Taylor or any of these guys, man, William Carey trying to bring the gospel to China, to India, these guys that were trying to go overseas with the gospel, they had so much pushback and resistance, and people like, you remember William Carey? I think, yeah, he's the one that was at, uh, I get William Carey and Hudson Taylor confused. I think it's Carey, though. He stood up, you know, and he's like, I, you know, he's going to take the, I want to take the gospel to China or India, and a guy stands up and says, William Carey, sit down. Remember that? Why? Because they're dirty heathens. If God wants to save somebody over there, let God do that. That's not our job. That's not up to us. So it's, an, it's incredible because we think, oh, yeah, man, we would never think that way. Well, that actually is a very <laughs> recent change, you know, in a lot of ways. Because, and, and this is Christ's point. When they're looking at, if you go back, let's just, let's go back to Isaiah 56. I'll show you a few. This is where Christ quotes from when he quotes this, when he says this. Okay, Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. He's talking about the nations, right? Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Did they not read Isaiah? That's the question, right? Did they not? Look at, look at Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, verse 5. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. Look at, uh, I mean, you can go, you know, Isaiah, that's why Isaiah is called the Gospel of Isaiah. We said a thousand times, right? Why? Because the Gospel of Isaiah is about how God is going to go forth and save people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Look at, um, look at Isaiah 9. The people... I mean, look at, look at Isaiah 9. This is even quoted in, in Matthew, you know, in the Christmas story. Verse 1, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. This is the, these are the Gentiles. These are the dirty people. 
And if you go back, see, here's the problem that they're having, okay? If you go back to the Abrahamic covenant, go back in time to Genesis chapter 12. What was the promise there? That in Abraham, all the, all the nations of the earth are to be blessed through his seed, right? All the earth. Go back to, man, you can go back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis. What's the problem? What, what does God tell Adam and Eve to do? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue the earth, right? Go into all the earth. This isn't just for like a little portion of the world here. This is for the entire universe. That's what the gospel is for. It's for everybody. And so when Christ goes in here, because why is this the thing? He is in the, okay, and I, you know, I need to mention this part, this temple area, you've probably known this, what is that temple area called where Christ is working in right now, that he's preaching in? The court of the Gentiles. You see that? Now how wicked is this, man? The Gentiles, they can't, they even had a sign. The sign says if you pass beyond this portion right here, if you're a Gentile and you pass beyond this portion, you'll be put to death. That's where Christ is standing whenever he's saying this. That this house, you guys have portioned this, this thing off. You guys have segregated this thing so that you have your really special people. And then you have like the second-hand citizens over here who are Gentiles. And he's saying that's not the way this was ever supposed to be. Through Abraham, all the, all the nations are to be blessed through Abraham. The gospel is from the seed of Abraham. That's why we dealt with this in catechism class a couple weeks ago. Remember Galatians 3, verse 8. Galatians 3. The gospel is preached to Abraham. If you are in Christ, you are a son of Abraham, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Ephesians 2. In fact, look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2 when he's talking about this wall of hostility that's been broken down. A lot of commentators think that he's talking about this, this little sector in the, in, the, in the temple that's been broke, that's been crushed, been brought down by the gospel. He says this, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. What do you mean both one? The Gentile and the Jew. And they were both enemies. It's not like just the Jew was looking at the Gentile as unclean and wicked and barbaric and weird. And the Gentiles were looking at the Jews the same way. All right, So it's not just one-sided here. The Gentiles are like, yeah, man, it's mutual. We agree. Yeah, don't come into our territory because you guys, you guys are the unclean ones. He has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, etc., uh, to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, the Gentiles, and to those who are near, the Jews. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. You would not know that if you were to show up in the temple courtyards and look around and see the sign that says, Gentiles, you can't go any further. That's what Christ is, that's what he's working with here. Okay? Now, now, let's pause here. Say, man, how could those Jews be like that? What is up with those Jews? Right? Or whoever, you know. But, but here's the thing. You know what? And here's the, here's the, uh, here's, this is why I love preaching. Because you're like, yeah, this is the teaching. But look, man, let's, let's, let's hone in here just a little bit. All right? You know who does the same thing all the time? A lot of times, reformed Christians, right? It's like, hey, man, that's cool. You're a Christian, but you know John Calvin. You don't? Well, there's a church down the street, right? 
Not this. Now, I'm not saying we do that. Praise God. Well, I have never seen that. I really haven't. You know, but you know what I mean in general, right? It's kind of like you have this elitism mentality. And it is true. I mean, we are, you know, by and large, pretty studied people. We take this stuff seriously. And that's a good thing. That's what you want. That's what the Jews were doing. This, the, uh, the Pharisees had that. The Pharisees, man, they were very zealous about this stuff. They did have a very, they, were, they wanted to know the Word, man. They were very serious about knowing the Word. That is good, right? But what's not good is when you lose that, that, that warmth, the tenderness that comes from the Holy Spirit as you're examining the Word and as you're interacting with others who might not be on the same level, that's where the Pharisees lost it. The Pharisees started thinking, wow, man, these guys are idiots. You know, these guys are dumb. These guys aren't as holy as we are. These guys don't, you know, they don't know about, you know, like the regular principle of worship. They don't know any of this stuff. These guys are morons. And so that started to infect them, make them callous, make them hard, make them bitter, make them elitist, exclusivistic. And that happens a lot. Now, it could be said the same thing. I mean, look, it's not just the reform camp. It's like, I, you know, I don't care what camp you're in. You can, you can fall into this trap. You know, if you're like a charismatic and, you know, you're like, hey, man, have you, been, have you had that second baptism? You haven't? Well, then you're probably not even saved. You know, so that can happen. It doesn't matter what group you're in. I'm saying this about reformed Christians because we're reformed, right? I mean, if we're in another church, we can talk about that. But for us, that's the, that's the danger for us. That's the problem that they fell into. And so this is something that affects all of us. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not just, I mean, it's amazing, is it not, how quickly this starts to creep into our own ways of looking at ourselves and others and, and everything. So that's what, you know, when you're looking at this, you know, it's easy to err on the other side, too, where you're like, hey, you know, we're, we all love Jesus, so it's all good. You know, doctrine doesn't matter. Theology doesn't matter, this and that. You don't want to err on that side either. You, y'all know I'm not saying that. But the point is, is when you're looking at what they were doing, we don't want to fall in that same trap and start doing the same thing. And I, don't, I, I really have not ever seen much of that tendency in this church. And whenever it is, I mean, I, I feel like we've always been able to talk about it and everything else, work through that. But at the same time, this is something that is always latent for whatever camp you're in. Looking at others as second-class citizens, second-class Christians, all right? And that's what they were doing. So, look at the next part. It gives us another verse here, or another reason. So that's the first reason. So what are they doing? They're exclusivistic. They don't realize that salvation is for anyone who comes to Christ. The Messiah is not just for the Jews. The Messiah is for Jews and Gentiles. The second thing, okay, the second thing he says, and this is still in verse 18, or 17, excuse me, then he taught them, saying to them, uh, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? So that's the first part. And prayer, you know, we could spend another hour on just the idea of a house of prayer, you know, but, but um, and we should, but, but let's, let's go to the second one and then we'll come back. But you have made it a den of thieves. That's the second, the second reason, okay? And this, is, this goes back to the exploitation. This goes back to the greed. This goes back to the, to the corruption that's taking place within the religious institution itself. And also, here's the, the ironic part about this is that, okay, you remember, it seems like forever for us, but, I mean, this is back in chapter 10 when they were in Jericho. And remember, that's, where, that's right before they go into Jerusalem. Jericho was the place... Jericho was a, um, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was notorious for robbers and for bandits. Because the word he uses here is not just a, 
a, a thief. You know, you think a thief and you think of somebody that you know, steals something. He, this, this word is much broader than that. He's talking about outlaws. He's talking about bandits. You know, if you, you think about pirates, he's talking about these, these men who are ruthless and cruel. That's what he, the word he's using here is that. But he's saying whenever people use this word, they usually refer to the people who are lining the streets between Jericho and Jerusalem who would be there to basically plunder people, pounce on people and plunder their goods because they know there's going to be a lot of travelers through there. And so he's using the word that people usually use for those, for those people to say this is what the religious people are like in the temple. The real wickedness is not on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. The real wickedness in this land is right here in God's house, in this temple. And that's why this is so offensive. Because they're like, oh yeah, I know what he's saying. You know, he's saying that we're worse than those other guys. Yeah, exactly right. Because why? Now, now go back and ask yourself, okay, this is, I mean, you can ask yourself, okay, look, they're outwardly religious. We saw this with the fig tree, right? What was wrong? What, the deal with the fig tree, it looked like it should be producing fruit. It's outwardly glorious. It's outwardly luscious. It looks good from the out external circumstance. Then you go up to it and you realize there's no fruit here. And so that's, that's the same thing. You have Annas the high priest. You've probably seen the movies, unfortunately. We've all probably been, you know, our eyes blinded by these, by these scandalous images of Jesus. But, you know, so you see these movies, and you see it, right? Annas the high priest, man, this guy's decked out. He's got this glorious temple and courtyard and everything else. Um, he's got, you know, he's got all the, the servants around him. He looks beautiful, man. He's robed in this glorious purple. Man, he's, everything looks spectacular. But he's saying it's corrupt. You go and you examine it. It's evil. It's wicked. So that's why they're so offended by this. In verse 18, that's exactly what's the response. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. They know what he's saying. They know, first of all, he's saying that you guys who are supposed to be the rulers of this temple are not the rulers. First of all, I'm the ruler. That's what he's saying, right? If somebody comes in and they start, you know, they come into the temple and they start saying, look, there's, there's evil here, there's corruption here, there's greed here, I can see it, I'm sniffing it out, and not only that, but I'm going to start throwing things around, I'm going to halt the, the exchange of money, and I'm going to make sure that this and that. They know that what he's saying is that they are not the true leaders. He's the leader. That's the first thing that incenses them. The second thing, of course, is, is what he's saying. That's the second thing. He says, okay, so he's making a statement. He's the Lord of the temple. And he's also saying, through the parable, that the is the, the now think of this, the history of Israel has reached the culmination. It has reached a, a place of decisive destruction. There is no coming back from the destruction of AD 70. There has never been, we know, a temple. There will never, and if there is, it's, believe me, if it is a temple, it's not something that God's going to build. The Pharisees are wiped off the face of the earth. The scribes are wiped off the face of the earth. The genealogies are wiped off the map. The sacrifices are gone. Everything is coming to an end. Now we know that's because of the gospel. Because in the gospel, what do you have? As we mentioned here earlier, before. In Christ, what do you have? You have the sacrifice. All these sacrifices pointed to his sacrifice. All the sacrifices, all the goats, all the bulls, all the blood. You see this in Hebrews 10. It was all pointing to Christ, his sacrifice. We, we don't have priests anymore. Why? We have a high priest. Who intervenes for us? A high priest who makes intercession for us. A high priest who continues to, 
You know, he offered his body, he offered his sacrifice once for all time, but he continues to intervene for us and intercede for us. So you don't have sacrifices because Christ is the sacrifice. You don't have a priest because Christ is the priest. And you don't have a temple. Why? Because Christ is the temple. You don't have a temple anymore. You don't need a temple anymore. That's the point. And of course, through Christ, we are embodying his temple. We are the temple. The church is the temple, right? The people of God. So now that's what that's what's going on here. So when he's talking about, yeah, well, he's flipping tables and stuff, and that might look bad, and people are right to say, wow, man, that must have been very scandalous and very offensive. That's right. That is true. That's right. But what he's saying is far worse than just going around and flipping some tables. He's saying that the point has now come. The temple is under judgment. God is coming in to destroy the entire system. He's going to wipe it off the face of the earth. And he does. Eventually he does. And that's why if you are in Christ, we're so grateful, we're so humbled by the fact that, because, I mean, think about it. We have, man, do you think, was there a time in your life when you looked at this stuff and you were on the side of, let's say, the, these unbelieving Jews or these unbelieving pagan Gentiles? And you, you realize, think about this, okay? They are expecting Jesus to come in and wipe out the Roman Empire not knowing that the true enemy are themselves. And how many people out in the world today, they're like, man, yeah, I, I, God, God is going to wipe Hitler out. God is going to wipe this guy out. God's going to wipe out you know, Hamas or Israel, depending on whatever side you're on, or Joe Biden or Donald Trump, you know, not realizing that they're the ones under judgment so often. Outside of Christ, they're the ones under judgment. It's like when you're out preaching and someone's like, oh man, my buddy really needs to hear this. <laughs> you need to hear this. What about you, right? And that's what's going on here. So they're like, yeah, man, we got these horrible enemies like the Romans. And Jesus is saying, no, guys, you're the enemy. And unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He says that in other, other places, right? But that's the same message, right? Unless you repent, whether you're a Jew 2,000 years ago, whether you're a dirty Gentile 2,000 years ago, or whether you're so-and-so right now, Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. That's the glory. And the glory of the gospel is that, well, how, do we, how are we spared from perishing? How are we spared from judgment? This wrath of God falling on this place, destroying. How can we be spared from this? Well, because Christ in his own body, in his own person, is going to go to the cross and fall under that judgment for us. He's going to be afflicted by the pain, the penalty of death, the penalty of sin, so that we can be spared that. That's the glorious gospel. And then look, the last part here. They sought how to destroy him, for they feared him. Now, is that not astonishing? They feared him. How do they fear him, but they don't repent? They don't come to him. They fear him, but they don't bend the knee to him. Remember in Psalm 2, it talks about how the nation, the kings of the nation, they better be wise and kiss the feet, kiss the son. Kiss, his, kiss him. Why? lest he be angry. Here it is, man. They're, they fear this guy. They fear him. But it's a, it's a worldly kind of fear. They fear him because they know that this guy's influential. This guy has the ear of the people. This guy, they fear him because this guy is going to take away their privileges, take away their status, take away their gold, take away all the things that they've treasured up all their life. And in one blink of an eye, Christ is now coming in and he's going to ruin everything for them. Because all the people were astonished at his teaching. 
That's why, that's why they fear him. Isn't that something? Instead of looking around and saying, wow, if they're astonished at his teaching, why aren't we astonished by his teaching? They fall. Why, 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 what, where's the disconnect? They have a hardened heart. You know, you wonder sometimes in churches even, where it's like, man, you look around. Remember sometimes, I could imagine being a kid or, I don't know, you know, if you, you're looking around, you're like, man, how's my dad into this stuff so it's like this? That's like these guys, you know? It's like these, they're looking around at the common people like, man, what's, what's wrong with these people? I can assume that, you know, like you're, you're, you have a kid or something and like, man, my parents are really into this stuff. They really like reading the Bible and stuff. What's wrong with them? That's a, so if that is you, if you are like, hey, man, I, I can't figure out how come people are actually into this stuff. If that's you, now's a great, great situation to say, Lord, have mercy on me. I clearly am on the wrong side here. I need a new heart. I need new desires. I need, a, I need new affections. The Bible says he will in no way cast you out, in no wise cast you out if you come to Christ. So, next week we'll, uh, we'll discuss the next part, which I mentioned prayer. So we'll come back to prayer next week because he's, he's going to deal with faith, prayer, and forgiveness and how all of that works. So we'll come back to prayer because I think that deserves its own section. But let's pray. Oh Christ, we do thank you for your kindness, O oh God, to come and rescue people, that your gospel is not just for one ethnicity. Well, what a privilege that is. What a glorious thing it is, Father. What a, what a sad state it is to look in the world and see all the race baiting and the propaganda and everything over, over race and ethnicity. Well, we praise you today that although there, there are distinctions as far as ethnicity and nationalities go, we thank you that the gospel is for all ethnicities and for all nationalities and for all tongues and all tribes and all uh, stripes, even of theology. Lord, we know that even in our theology, you have people who are uh, far from perfect in their theology, and yet they, they genuinely and truly call upon your name and love you because you first loved them. So, Lord, thank you for this. Give us grace, O oh God, to be uh, tender, to be sensitive to uh, the work that you're doing uh, in us and in others. Lord, thank you for this work. We know that apart from your grace, apart from your kindness, that, that, uh, that, that we would be as blind as any Pharisee or as hard-hearted or as, as puffed up as, as any Sadducee. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your grace. And bless us now, O God, uh, as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in light of that, I'm going to say... Uh,